I wrote a book about my life named Moguldom. You can get more information about this book at moguldombook.com. I talk about acquiring a knowledge of self, self-determination, and building a business over 10 years. There are some gems in this book that you don't want to miss. One way to support the Go movement in this podcast is to go to moguldombook.com, buy the book on pre-sale to support the Go movement. Let's go. You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. This is part three of my interview with Howard Franklin. Be sure to check out part one and two on previous episodes. Another trick. I want the politician to do something for me. The politician has plans to, to either increase the wealth of their private foundation for example, the Clinton Foundation, where the donors, they can give to the foundation. Ooh, I want to help people. But the donors are looking for something. I may give 10 million. I may give 20 million. I may give 50, 100 million. But I'm not just trying to help people. I got to play this swamp game at a high level. And so... Donors to the Clinton Foundation, donors, a lot of Silicon Valley money went into the Obama Foundation. Okay. I'm not suggesting that there's a lot of conflicts or the conflicts with the Clinton Foundation is, you know, is connected to the conflicts or swampy activity, potential swampy activity with the Obama Foundation. I'm not saying that, but... A lot of the Obama donors, a lot of corporate folks that were writing for Obama, they donated to his foundation. And let me just say, I think Obama's intentions with the foundation in terms of helping, particularly black America, I think they're pure. I think he has good intentions. But do you think that there needs to be kind of stronger laws where, hey, you know, I'm going to kick it with Google and I'm not going to do any regulations for Google and Facebook. I get out of office, Google and Facebook and give my foundation $100 million. What can you do about that? Or can you not do something like that? Because there's no transaction. There's no paper trail. It's, it's kind of, you know, hey, it's just an understanding. It's how the game is played. I think the, I would start from a different place in that transaction. When President Obama or President Bush or President Clinton or now President Trump is in office and is not being responsive to calls for regulation, now is the time to have the conversation, right? After this person has transitioned to a post-presidency and now can live out the rest of his or her days in a much different space, I don't know that you have, again, nearly as much leverage in this conversation. So, you know, I, I don't know that there's a, I don't have a, a regulatory framework that I would propose this moment, but I would say if you're concerned about those issues, the place to do it is with the Congress we have today and the White House we have today. You do believe there's room for improvement in terms of Absolutely. integrity. There's Absolutely. a lot of room for improvement. And well, of course, we talked about uh, Ferguson hiding, this brother hiding cash in his freezer. 
Jefferson, swampy yeah. a- a- activity. Was was his first name? Jeff. Uh, was it William? It wasn't. It was, I think I, it was William. Yeah, Jefferson. William Jefferson. Yeah. yeah. William Jefferson. But Cory Booker, if Google is investing in your private company while you're a politician and you start the startup and you sell it and you have the chief of Google investing in your startup. Hey, we know that America is a very corrupt place, but he's allowed to do stuff like that. So you're, you're advocating for rules that wouldn't allow people who serve at the well, highest level to take investment well, or well, do think, business. Well, I think the first step is the voter has a lot of power. Right. If, if we can dilute the influence of the swamp, uh, that the voter could just vote these people who are doing these questionable things. Don't vote for them or vote them out. And the voter needs to be informed. I totally agree. About how the, the rules of the monopoly game. And a lot of the and, people that you that you've name checked are on a ballot next year. Right. We'll have yeah. an opportunity to say, hey, the your political career goes forward. You pass go. Or stops here today, right? I think that's going to happen for a lot Do of politicians. Do you agree with when that black agenda, that serious, cohesive black agenda is ready to go, that the black, the black agenda is better off if you made significant strides with how the swamp works? Meaning that, that if you try to get good stuff through a elevated swamp environment that hey maybe it's better that you knock down a lot of these uh swamp norms and how the swamp works and you, and the people become more educated when that black agenda is time to go through the system it's it's gonna it's not gonna be diluted so let, let me let like, me level set here because i feel like maybe you you heard me say something earlier and it may be different than what I wanted to, to come across. I agree. So you agree with that? I agree that we should be trying to figure out ways to make influence and money less pervasive in our politics. And frankly, as someone who is in the influence business, it actually would be better for me so that I don't have to come to clients and say, listen, you know, we've got a better idea, but this guy paid some money. Or we've got, we've got a better piece of legislation, but this guy's plugged in. Do you right? agree with this? This simple kind of framework for our people. If the lobbying value in the United States goes down, the black numbers, the way we vote cohesively in terms of 90% voting for the Democratic Party, meaning that we're voting together, which could be powerful, that if the lobbying value goes down in the United States, black voter equity goes up. Meaning your vote is going to count a lot more. It's going to be more powerful if this other know, stuff I, is reduced. I enjoy a good hypothetical question as much as anybody. But if you're watching what's happening in state houses, city halls, at the, at the federal level, in Congress, in the White House, the reach, the uh, ability, the largesse that lobbyists have to deploy in a system is not shrinking. It's growing. Right. So if, if somehow we could fiat that the business of influence were to shrink and would reverse the trend lines that we've seen the last 10, 15, 20 years, then I think this is a worthwhile conversation. In the absence of that reality, I think we got to figure out how to be more impactful in the one that we're already sitting in, right? I, I just, I, someone, my clients aren't going to pay me to say, hey, if 
you know, if we lived in an alternate universe, I could have gotten this bill passed. They're going to say, well, what can you do today in this universe, in this reality? And, that, and that's kind of the, the plane I'm trying to have this conversation on. The business of influence is not shrinking. It's not going away. I think we need to figure out how to engage with it. And thank goodness. But it's being attacked where folks like, it's Ber been attacked. On, folks like Bernie Sanders, I believe uh, they have led the charge where now you're seeing other folks like Cory Booker, Kamala Harris. They say, hey, we don't want any corporate PAC money. So, so, so I'm just saying that there's, there's things moving. No meaningful. So what I think you've already laid out the, the avenue for those dollars to find their way into those campaigns in other ways, other means. That means you're just saying up, that, hey, we swamp money. Up, you're, you're saying, hey, look, I know about the swamp. That's swamp money getting in there. It's, it's going to find a way. It's going to find a way. It's going to find a way. I, I, would, I, I don't want to turn a blind eye to it. I would rather we say more important than any dollar you could collect is a vote, right? We had the SEC primary four years ago. We had all these southeastern states lined up casting their ballots for uh, for our, our, our president. And if we speak with a collective voice, it's going to mean much more than any dollar amount could ever amount to for any politician. Money is only out there to buy the votes. If people say, my vote's not for sale, I already, I'm, a, I'm actually educated on the issues and the candidates, and here's how I'm voting my conscience. All the money in the world won't change the outcome. People, let me just say, I, I mentioned at the outset of this, this interview, I, I spent the first dozen years of my career running campaigns and plenty of those campaigns we got outworked we got outraised on right people raised more money than us and then still fell to the sword when it was time to count the votes on election day it's not strictly a matter of dollars and cents it's certainly it, it's important right and i wouldn't acknowledge that if we didn't raise any money we would still won but i think we got to acknowledge there are ways to beat back the influence of money in politics are you familiar with the name sherry bustos um, she's a daughter of a president, I believe. Sherry Bustos is the chairwoman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign. Okay, so no, I was not familiar. Okay, are you aware of the beef that has broken out in the Democratic Party? Where Several the, beefs. <laughs> where the, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, they have said that if you're a vendor who works with someone who's challenging one of our people who are already in power, you. we're going to, we I don't like to you. use blacklist. We're going to whitelist you. <laughs> They're saying that we don't want another AOC. We don't want some of these young people to challenge some of these people who've been eating chitlin fries for 20 years or 30 years not shaking things up they're part of the establishment they're comfortable but the democratic congressional campaign committee is saying that if if if, if there's a democratic candidate that runs against someone who's already in office we're going to whitelist you so let me oh, just hold on, hold on, hold on. Let, let me just let me just finish so there was a report last week that the Congressional Black Caucus is not, it's not a surprise. They're on the side of Sherry Bustos uh, and the uh, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in terms of this role that we don't want anybody running against our people in 2020. 
what do you think about the Congressional Black Caucus siding with the establishment? This is not where I'd like to see them. Um, but I'll put in some context. You know, DCCC gets behind 10 or 12 hyper-competitive races every cycle, right? They're not, we have 435 members in Congress. Each of them is up every two years. 10 or 12 of them will be hotly contested, flipping back and forth between Republican and Democrat. And that's where DC, I've worked on dozens of races. I have never worked along the DCCC. I've worked on races, and when I say worked alongside, worked directly with. And I think this is another acknowledgement of where our politics is going. Um, I just, I would acknowledge that so much of this, this is certainly problematic, right? I think part of the, the issue too, for, and I, you know, we talk about this all the time, Atlanta being the home of the civil rights movement. We got plenty of elder statesmen in politics who've been around for a very long time, who need to make room for new blood, new ideas, and new leadership, right? I think that that's, I think most people who are bumping around in politics, at least in my generation, feel that way. Um, but there's still only one way to send them home, and that's to beat them at the ballot box. But I'm with you. I don't, I don't like the CBC would take this stance, but I'm does also that sound, not, does that sound like the CBC is playing in the swamp? Because I just think, swamp, I think they're protecting their own, right? Their membership is going to be older black members of Congress who came in when, when reapportionment and the voting rights act allowed for uh, seats that would allow black and brown people to be elected to Congress. Many of them have served 10, 20, 30 years, right? Yeah. It's incumbent it, protection it, and everybody does and it. And this is not a, black thing or, or race thing but let me say this that in in africa you've had leaders rob the people like Sonny abacha in mm -hmm. nigeria over and over again you have leaders that do not want to give up power they would prefer the people to shed blood or the country goes bankrupt and they want to stay in power until they die including Mugabe. Okay, so there's people who are drunk on power and if the people are better off with someone else, they don't care. If the people are better off with a different vision, a younger, fresh vision, they don't care. But in these African countries, they want to stay on power. It's more about them than the people. You hold, on, hold on, hold on, and I'm saying, <laughs> and I'm saying that the Congressional Black Caucus, it may look different, but you have people where it's clear that there's better leadership, there's fresher leadership, new ideas, sure, who want to present the people with a different vision, and they want to stop them. They don't even want them to run. Well, let me just say, I'm I'm not ready to compare, you know. <laughs> autocratic dictators in developing and third world countries to black politicians in Congress who have largely been out of power and out of favor. Being a member of the minority looks great. You're still on television. You got some perks. You may be good to go on MSNBC or Fox or CNN, but it's not like being the president of a country where there's, where you don't even have to abide by the rule of democracy, right? These people still have to win elections at the end of the day. They still got to win elections. And plenty of incumbent politicians, even at the congressional level, have lost elections to young upstarts, not just AOC. Um, Ayanna Presley knocked off a 10-year or 10-term incumbent, uh, 
uh, incumbent and Mike Capuano this past year as well. And plenty of folks in the Democratic establishment, myself included, were excited about her leadership, met her and supported her financially and otherwise. So I, I like, yes, that's a bad example and I, we shouldn't be encouraging it, but it's not preventing turnover in leadership. We've had, this is, as you, I'm but sure, it, no it's, doubt it's of a, her, a, youngest a, and most diverse Congress in the history of this August body. But it's a swampy practice. It's, does it sound? This swampy? is a swampy practice. I mean, okay. I don't. I don't. Man, you got somebody who's in the swamp telling the <laughs> saying that the Congressional Black Caucus. It, that's a swampy. That's practice. a swampy practice. And you, how could someone? And first is that the mothership they're answering to a white woman named Sherry Bustos. Oh, you, are you, you sure she's white? She, yes. Okay. Uh, well. I, the pictures. Uh, okay. I'm assuming she's white. She's also another one of your multi-millionaires. That's ninety percent of Congress is millionaires, man. It's hard but, to, to single out the 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 few that happen to be yeah. Democrats that are millionaires. Another thing on the CBC. So you have some people in the black community. They give Biden a hard time because he advocated for. Uh, the the Clinton crime bill, mass incarceration. Sure. Biden banged for that. Uh, it's hard for me to criticize Biden and these white politicians who supported the crime bill when I know, when my research says, the CBC was advocating for this. My research says Charles Rangel was one of the leaders who brokered that mass incarceration deal. So if... White folks in government, in power, if they say, hey, I got to listen to you guys, I got to listen to these people who are closer to community. But if our leaders are going to go to D.C. and say we want mass incarceration or we're willing to support mass incarceration and they don't realize that this is very short term thinking, that it sounds good. But you're talking about a big beast and based on how the system is designed and structured your people are going to be worse off, meaning that our leaders may not even have the vision. Again, this comes hold, hold, back hold. to a, this lack of a black of agenda. That, oh. I, I agree with what you're okay, saying. Okay, so, so do you agree that before we go at Biden and say, man, Biden was for mass incarceration. I can't vote for him. Shouldn't we hold our own leaders accountable who voted for mass incarceration, who told some of these other leaders, yes, this would be good. Charlie Rangel's no longer in the Congress. Biden's going to no, be I'm on a ballot. The, the establishment. Sure. Some of these so I, I'm agreeing with so much of, of the why that has driven your advocacy and your, your passion around these issues. The question I got to ask as an operator is how, right? Like I hear exactly what you're saying. I know how to hold someone like Joe Biden accountable because if he does decide he wants to declare his rate or his candidacy for, for president, then he's got to come through all 50 United States. But if someone like Charlie Rangel up in Harlem, obviously, who's no longer in uh, the House, it made a decision that I don't agree with, I don't really but have... But institu the institution he would bang for, the Congressional Black Caucus... And just to be clear, you and I aren't funding the Congressional Black Caucus. The same organizations that, that you got in your soapbox about earlier saying, hey, these so guys are spend, they're spending all this time and this money propping folks up. They're helping these presidential candidates or the, you know these... These, you know, prophetic black leaders, these are the same organizations writing max checks and donations APAC. to 
not just APEC. I, but yeah, but yeah. APEC's writing that check. Yeah, and, and, but they're doing it, and they're doing it across the aisle, right? But, but my point is, the way this works is, I, I'm just asking, what's the lever you would pull to hold these folks accountable, right? Like beyond talking about them. New York is a thousand miles away from where I live. I don't have any standing to vote in that congressional seat, right? And whether or not I give my money to this organization or that one is not going to change one iota. Well, so, well, that's what I'm saying. When the black agenda is organizing, crafted, okay, a cohesive agenda that brings, that has a big tent that brings a lot of people in, it needs to have an element. It's obvious. Hey, we're going to bang against. America. We're going to bang against white folks. We're going to bang against white supremacy. That needs <laughs> okay. to be in the black agenda. Sure. But also in the black agenda, we have to hold ourselves and leaders accountable that because the system is rigged or, uh, you know, uh, white folks have done this and they've done that. Self-accountability is a critical piece of the black agenda exactly what i've been saying this entire time that hey if our politicians are going to go out there and crip walk for mass incarceration are our politicians going to go out there and be hoodwinked and vote for the iraq war there has to be accountability for the people that we send to dc absolutely I, i'm in total agreement with you and i i mean i think that's that's the thread that's connected my comments here. I think it's great to look out outwardly and to say, here are things wrong with the system. But if we can't even, after 50 years of a CBC and plenty of other organizations, I don't want to just put it at their feet. We got urban leagues and NAACPs and national caucus of state black legislatures and plenty of other organizations that have organizational heft, that have institutional knowledge, that have relationships to power, and have insights into our problems. And if we haven't come up with a cohesive agenda yet, I, I, I take issue. I, I can't point my finger at those guys, you know, taking advantage of our lack of organization and our lack of discipline first. I got to say, are we doing what we're supposed to do? And then after that, and if we have, and we're still running into brick walls, if we're still being outspent and outorganized and outfundraised, if our voices are still being drowned out, then, I, then it's a conversation we need to have about how we address this swamp. And, and, and this is not an either or, by the way. I, I think it's certainly important. But I, take, I have a tough time thinking about all the things that we aren't doing and worrying about what other folks are doing in the absence of our action. Where does reparations land in your black agenda and how you think about what folks should be focused on or do you even support uh hr 40 and reparations i support the idea um i think a lot of folks in the a lot of leaders whether they are thought leaders whether they are political leaders um whether they're revolutionary leaders have talked about how we might do this and i think the biggest issue isn't the question of if we should or why we should. It's how we could such that this government wouldn't, you know, fall down under its own weight, right? Like I think I, I don't think this is a question of whether or not this country owes a debt or whether or not it should be repaying it. I think that the challenge is with all of the complexities in governance today that you got to be careful about pursuing something meant to uplift one group of people if you can show that it might harm another. And I, I think that's really the stumbling block that we've run into. That's where the study 
of reparations, meaning I believe in a process. Absolutely. So one is America needs to commission a credible study. And this is where you don't want your black swamp people being on the council who would be studying this issue. Meaning in terms of these people. I would hope an issue uh, like this uh, would supersede whatever. Yeah, so, 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 so one is the study of reparations is not just for white America to understand what happened. The study of reparations is a lot. Our most of us don't understand the trauma, the psychological and cultural after effects of slavery. Absolutely. And what was done, the for reparations to, to work, the black man and woman here in the United States, first, you, we need to understand. A lot of us have not studied what really happened. And we don't, we can't quantify, hey, what happens when you take a person's name and they don't have a, a, a country uh, that they can connect with. They can't reference anything. And you just cut that off. And they, they, they just have to kind of just figure things out. What happens uh, when you, you systemically rape a lot of the slaves in terms of how can that kind of be an impairment on their thinking going forward or their ability to function normally. And so a lot of our people don't even understand that a lot of these pathologies are connected to slavery. And so there's a economic component, obviously, but another piece I think that's lacking is we got to understand what was done to us and how that has impacted our culture in terms of shitty cuz who was the killer, the killer of Nipsey. Of Nipsey. And a lot of this violence that we see in our in our streets, even in terms of the self hate. I totally agree. Let me just say this though: Congress didn't come to the SCLC or NAACP and say, "Hey guys, we think it's unfair that our laws don't allow African Americans and women the right to vote." Right? Outside agitators had to go make noise, perform demonstrations, shame. Uh, elected leaders into coming around and then still had to have sharp elbow negotiations to get what was owed to people who built this country. I don't imagine reparations to be much different. Why shouldn't we have in a country with more than 100 HBCUs and plenty of other PWIs an academic approach to this that isn't or doesn't have to be greenlit by Congress or by a president? Well, we could come back to those leaders and say, listen, we have done, performed academic studies that have now plumbed the depths and the horrors of what you put our ancestors through. Here is what we think it's worth. Here is how you have to come correct. Here's what we expect going forward, right? My only concern is that if we're waiting for elected officials to take on an issue that is proven to be a lightning rod in a divided house where the Senate's controlled by Republicans, House controlled by Democrats. I don't know who's controlling the White House these days. Like, we're not going to see it happen, right? So, so much of this is self-determination. I'm not saying the responsibility fully is ours. I'm just saying if you acknowledge that you're not going to give me what I'm owed, then I've got to come knock on your door and demand it. And I can't do that while waiting for a handful of black leaders 
who make up the CBC or any other institution to wrestle the agenda from the majority parties and to send it in my direction. Would you say that the fact that reparations is gaining popularity as an issue in black America, and I give the the ADOS movement a lot of credit in terms of building on the prior work on reparations of others and using social media to organize and educate folks. Although I don't agree with everything uh, that ADOS is saying, I credit them with increasing the visibility and popularity of that issue. But would you say that the fact that Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker now, Nancy Pelosi supporting H.R. 40, the study of reparations, that reparations coming at this day and hour as becoming a Democratic Party issue, at least starting with the study of it, that's reflective that there's nothing left in the tank in terms of the Democratic Party and black people, meaning that we've seen what the black politician can do. Right. You got a lot of credit like Obama's black. A lot of these black politicians, they're black. Great. Democratic Party, this, that. But the old stuff does not work for us. These little tricks that the establishment have used to get us. Hey, we'll go to the churches around election time. Uh, you know, we'll we'll bring Jay-Z out. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll run a black candidate. Look how sharp he is. A lot of the stuff that has flowed through the system in terms of strategy with the Democratic Party and some of their advisors like Mark Penn and the stuff, all the darts and weapons, the black people have seen all that stuff. And right. Baltimore still looks the way it is. Right. The people are still not satisfied. Right. And so hold on. So, <laughs> so it, you need something more potent. And we saw a little bit of this with HRC. I, I uh, read it differently than you do. I think we have a clown car of a Democratic presidential primary. We have almost two dozen candidates jockeying for airtime, for visibility, and to stake out the opportunity to be the party standard bearer, bearer from the left. And so I think there are going to be a lot of ideas that get consideration because we're just in the silly season. So I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing that there might be oxygen for this discussion, but I think a lot of that oxygen is just it's part and parcel of the presidential race. If we, didn't, if we didn't have prominent politicians from all across the country declaring their, their uh, candidacies for president— I don't think we'd be talking about this. I, somebody would be, but it wouldn't be the echo chamber that we're hearing right now. Well, what I would say, I've been involved with politics probably since I was 16. And I think black America is at a point where the inequality, the, the, the wealth gap, the stuff that we see, the racism, the white supremacy, the, the way that other groups have a mastery of technology and corruption and that leaves us at a disadvantage as we saw with the uh, emissions corruption where the guy in Newport Beach has clients all over America and he's cheating and helping their kids get into the best school. So we know that this type of stuff is systemic, right? And so 
if the white supremacy and discrimination is systemic and it's not going away anytime soon, I think people are smartening up, particularly the younger generation, is that I cannot give that Democratic Party 90% credit every election and this stuff is not moving. And so I get about all this stuff. Oh, you know, Trump might win if you put reparations on the thing and uh, white folks may not vote Democratic, so we can't push reparations, this and that. But I believe that the black voter, when you go into that booth, you need to be thinking about the hood. You need to be thinking about people who have a lower lot than you. How would they be voting? How much patience do the people in the ghettos across the country, how much patience do we have? And so there's a sense of, I believe that there's a sense of urgency where you're going to have to get more for that vote. Uh, I'm not saying that go to a reparations or bus strategy in this election, but reparations hurting white Democrats and white folks and other groups Fuck that. I'm not... Shit, all these policies... Well, let me just say... Hold, hold on, let me just finish. All, oh, these, sure. all these policies, a lot of them are... Someone's getting hurt. And I'm not saying that we're looking to go out and hurt people. But America has committed a war crime against their people. And so the whole thing is coming down. I think the whole thing is coming down anyway. But if America wants to have a chance to heal... To leave it go on a path of healing. If 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 it, if, if it wants to possibly save herself in terms of the racial issues in the country, it's going to have to go through taking that medicine because the country needs to revisit what happened to our people in slavery. It's, it's not comparable to any group. The Frankensteinization of black people in America. It's not comparable to any group, but. The people need to understand what happened to us, including us. Go ahead. Yeah, I agree with most of what you said. I think one place we diverge, I don't think it's up to millennials or young people to vote in place of downtrodden black and brown people across this country, right? I think those people, all of us, need to do the same thing collectively, which is to vote for our economic futures, right? What we believe the agenda should include. And when politicians and leaders present themselves and the ideas that we that resonate with us we ought to find ways to support them we shouldn't say you know the college educated version of me or the guy who you know got out of this neighborhood is going to cast that vote for me the beauty of the american political system is one man one vote and i i think one other thing you got to be acknowledging you got to be cognizant of is that we're moving toward a majority minority society. We're not there yet, obviously. But I, don't. I th- but I think the closer we get to it, the easier it'll be to have some of these conversations. Again, I my disagree. suggestion is not that we should be waiting. I disagree with okay, that. Okay, so, tell me more. So so when you say, and here is where I deviate with the black consensus, a lot, a lot of folks will say, hey, once this country becomes majority non-white, Things are gonna get better, right? Things are gonna get better. Hold on, hold on. Let me me just say, I'm telling you that I don't care if the country flips to majority non-white. 
a lot of our people, whether consciously or subconsciously, believe in white supremacy. Okay? A lot of the brown men and women, they believe in white supremacy. The system is still in place. You can put a black face. You can put a brown face. You can put a woman. You can change these things in terms of what's on the outside. But we need to be looking at the institutions changing. And that all because something is non-white or all because something is brown or black or female, that that has an impact on the institutional beast that we're, we're, we're dealing with. I agree with you. It's not all about the color or the gender of the person. I think we've... We well, I'm the, saying in terms of the demographic shift, I, I just think that that's <clears throat> overplayed in my, in, I, in my view. So I think we can find a happy medium here. I'm not saying that the moment we go majority-minority, all the problems are solved, all the black and brown folks lock arms, and they enact this agenda we, that we ought or that we believe ought to come to fruition. But I do think that part of what you've acknowledged is some of this is a game of sheer numbers, right? And if you've got people who will be diligent in their study about who they should be supporting, who are educated about the issues that they want to see addressed, then you'll get that electorate will get you a leaders who won't sell their souls to moneyed interests, who will vote their conscience when the time comes for it, and who will strike meaningful bargains that still move the country forward. I, I, I got to believe that some degree of balance will be helpful to where we're headed. And I, don't, I think it's, it's going to address a lot of things. I think, you know, you, you acknowledge, and I think there's, there's some truth in this. You talked about the Democratic Party being able to rely on 90 plus percent of black voters casting a lot with this party. I think that you get to a place where you've got, uh, again, a melting pot of minorities and women and young people, my, uh, you know, millennials or now Generation Z, what have you. I think it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to reset the boundaries of what we expect from our parties and what we think is possible. Hell, we might get a third party or another organization that's more responsive to what we've been asking for for the last 50 or 60 years. I want to thank Howard Franklin for uh, coming on the show. Where can people uh, check you out online? On social, I'm at I run campaigns, so at I run campaigns with an S, and uh, our company website is OhioRiverSouth.com. Great conversation. This is Likewise. one of the longest episodes uh, out of fifty. <laughs> I enjoyed the conversation, and you'll definitely be back. Thank you. Hopefully. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamal Martin on Twitter, and also come check us out at Mogulum.com. That's M-O-G-U-L. DOM.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.